people when they join the church. That, hey, ahead there's going to be conflict. And so don't get surprised or disillusioned when it uh, you can learn and prepare to navigate it in a healthy way. We're going to get some help in thinking in our passage this morning. But since we're returning to the book of Acts, and we're trying to run a bit of where we've I want to give you a second just to stop, turn to someone next to you, as we often do, and tell them, hey, what's one thing or two things that you remember from our study in the book of Acts so far? Chapters 1 through 5. If you weren't here, say, I wasn't here, or I don't remember. It's okay, you can be honest. But if you remember something, share something you remember from 1 to 5. were shared. I trust there were a few I don't knows or I was in here's or I don't remembers. That's okay too. Hey, we're on this journey together. We're just going to keep marching along. Some of the things that you uh, might have remembered. Again, the book uh, was addressed to a man named Theophilus. Again, writing to Theophilus, an orderly account of things that have occurred about Jesus. It's about the risen Jesus. We see in chapter one, we read about Jesus' ascension. We read of the we read about the preaching of the apostles there in Jerusalem, and we see this new community formed, centered on the apostles, fellow making bread, sharing life together. We see that they were devoted to these things. We see healings. We've seen apostles arrested and threatened again. Internal Ananias and Sapphira lying to the church and to the Lord. Before that, we've seen the, the theme of the book, the whole book, is this call to be witnesses. We've talked about this a number of times from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where the Lord Jesus tells his people, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be witnesses. Um, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's really the heartbeat of the book is this call, uh, this empowering for me, uh, that the followers of Jesus would be his witnesses in the world, proclaiming, sharing who he has done so that more and more men and women would know Jesus. Some, some peak points. The coming of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. The, the growth of the church. All these progress reports along the way, right? There's been a few points where it says, uh, and disciples were multiplied or uh, were added to the church that day. Phrases like that, seeing the impact. Lives change forever. But also we've seen our share of chapters the church faced, right? Again, from the outside, being trial and beaten and threatened and rejected. And we've seen threats from within the 
up and right. And we're going to see some more of that this morning, some conflict. So look where this internal strife in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, in those days, increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked daily distribution of food. Where we start in those days, it says the number of disciples was increasing. Again, we've heard this at several points. There was growth, uh, rapid growth even, in the church. Many were added to their number. People were believing in Jesus. And just an observation we, before we jump into the heart of the conflict is the word used to describe the following Jesus. It's disciples, or the Greek is methetes. The number of disciples was increasing. It's an important reminder, something that might be easy for us to overlook about quite often, but we're talking about being disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus. This word was used to describe uh, students who learn from a master, students who, who follow a rabbi. Students who wanted to be with their rabbi and become like their rabbi in every way and do what their rabbi did. And is growing. Talking not just about converts, not just about people who have a decision to trust in Jesus, although that's obviously central to it. We're not talking about names on a church membership list. We're about disciples. We're talking about men and women who devote their whole lives to Jesus and say, Lord, I want to live your way. Whole life to you. It's not just about years ago or a commitment, a recommitment you made in the mountains at a camp one time. It includes that. But Jesus is about this robust whole life devotion. This adventure, truly, we get to be on with the Lord. And so if you're new to church, or if you're a young person here, hear, hear me well. The invitation from Jesus is not just to come in and kind of give him a nod, a short, simple, scripted prayer, and then, hey, leave unchanged, your life unchanged, and continue on the trajectory that you were already on. Now, the invitation is what, to follow me, he says. Be a disciple. To live a whole new life at the center, embracing his ways, embracing his word and his kingdom. He invites you to follow. And I love how the hand at camp, up at camp, youth camp the other week, uh, there were several students. Again, about 500 students were there, and a handful of them made first-time for Christ. And we celebrated that. Uh, but the camp did a great job reminding the churches and the students, everyone, that hey, this is just the beginning. The work God does up at camp in hearts is phenomenal and to be celebrated. It's just the start. Jesus didn't say converts, He said make disciples. 
And so he reminded the churches, hey, as you go down the hill, as you go back home, these students who have made decisions to follow Jesus are going to need, what, to be discipled. They're going to need to learn to, to follow Jesus in all of life. And so the same that we would be disciples. But as the number of disciples is, there's some conflict. The notorious B.I.G. reminded us famously that mo money sometimes equals mo problems. <laughs> Growth and affluence and good things can sometimes bring new challenges. Mo people often equals mo problems. We know that families think about it. When you get married, life is really simple. It's you and your spouse. If there's a child that comes into the picture, there's many new challenges and complexity. And then if you add a second child to the family, third, more complex. Before there were only two mouths to feed and and two sets of uh, two people to consider, and now there are three. Or each individual human being has their own needs and concerns, and so on. Life gets complicated. So notice the problem in the text. The number of disciples was increased. The Jews, among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because they were being overlooked in the distribution of food. This conflict centers around care for widows. And a certain group of widows was being over. First, we have the Hellenistic Jews, the text tells us. These were Jews who spoke Greek. They likely lived or were from outside of Jerusalem, a region known as the Diaspora. Many Jews over the centuries, for various reasons, uh, had ended up being scattered, lived outside their homeland. They did not live in Israel. They lived elsewhere. And so they adopted, uh, again, the common language of the day, which was Greek. Of them returned to Jerusalem. In fact, it, it, it was seen as quite virtuous to uh, die and be buried, if you were a Jew, in Israel, in your native land. And so, back, you could say, to Jerusalem or to Israel in their later years so that they could die. Then you have the Hebraic Jews. These were also. They spoke or Hebrew. They were native to the region. They lived there, up there. And in terms of numbers, this was definitely the dominant Hebraic Jews. So both groups were Jews. Both groups are followers of Jesus. And yet within this church, now we have some barriers, cultural barriers. Some linguistic barriers, challenges. Some speak, some don't. And there's an issue. The, the Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking Jews, why? Because their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution. See, in the ancient world, um, families, uh, you know, blood families, but also religious groups, especially the church, took seriously the call to care 
care for their own, especially if they were orphans. There weren't the same sort of and safety nets that we have today. And so in the church, there was this daily distribution of food, uh, of possibly other resources or money, especially given to widows who were in need. But it appears that, that the Hellenistic or Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked, were not receiving the food or the resources that they need in the daily distribution, while the Hebraic Jews were getting more attention and more resources. And so a complaint arises. Now, the text doesn't indicate, but it doesn't seem to be that this oversight was malicious or intentional. We don't know for sure, but it seems to be more of a simple oversight. Some, some barriers that were there in language and culture and communication that led to these widows not being cared for. And as is often the case in relationships and communities, some issues, some uh, problems, some pain that is caused is not necessarily the result of purposeful wrongdoing or malicious intent, but nonetheless, there's pain and a problem to be addressed. And so notice with me how they respond. The complaint arises. Verse 2, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenaeus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests even became obedient to the faith. So there's a couple things we can learn here as a church family about how to navigate growth and conflict well. First, we see that these believers navigate growth and conflict with love. First, they respond with love. And here's how we know this is true. First, they listen well. They hear the need and they make a plan to address it. Right? Look at verse 3. Brothers and sisters, they call everybody together. Hey, choose seven from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them. Hey, there's a problem that needs to be addressed. We're going to uh, appoint some people to address it. And next I have the offended group select some key leaders to be responsible to fix it. And so sometimes simply listening to a need or problem is an act of great love. They acknowledge there's an issue and they make a plan to address it. Notice what they didn't do. They didn't brush the need aside. They didn't become defensive and downplay what was going on. 
especially in an honor and shame culture, bringing uh, a complaint or a criticism to leadership or about leadership could be something seen as offensive. And rather seeing their honor challenged and how dare you know, they respond with love. I read this week an article that, that described the difference between a heart of repentance and a heart of defensiveness. It was so helpful, and the author, Gavin Ortland gave some examples of defensiveness. A defensive heart says, but look at what I did right. You know, a criticism comes your way. Ah, but you're talking about the bad stuff. What about all the good things I've done? But look at what was done to me. Or it wasn't that bad. Many of us in conflict have heard some of these. Most of us in conflict have probably practiced some of these defensive attitudes where we try to divert or deflect or distract or downplay the hurt or pain of another. So the apostles could have said, hey, you know what? Stop complaining, widows. Look at all the good things happening here. Don't you see the growth of the kingdom? Souls being saved? Look at the bigger picture. Lives are being changed, and you're here complaining about some food distribution? Grow up. Or they could have said, hey, what about your part in this, huh? You could have been proactive. You could have alerted us at the start that this was going to be an issue. You could have foreseen some of the situation and said, you're blaming us. Or they could have said, hey, why don't you come around to the temple more often? After all, that's where a lot of the food distribution likely took place. We don't see you as often at the temple. Or, hey, keep it in perspective. You know, this isn't that big of a deal. Why are you getting so hot and bothered over this? But that's not how they responded. Right? I think they responded with, with great love, acknowledging there's a problem here, and we're going to make a plan to address it, and we're not going to brush it aside or blame you about it. We're going to say, hey, let's fix it. It shows love for these widows. Now, realize some complaints and grumblings then in the church are necessary. But some are unnecessary. And I won't give examples, but I'll let your imagination run <laughs> about the sorts of complaints in the church that could be deemed unnecessary. But here we see some complaints and grumblings are needed. There are some problems in the church that need to be brought to the leader's attention. Or not even the leader. Sometimes there's uh, pain caused in the church or wrongdoing, and the, uh, those who are offending others might not be aware of it and might need help seeing it or hearing about it. So, so bringing uh, healthy feedback or even uh, loving Criticism, or hey, this needs to change, or hey, have we thought about this? In the church, there should be a place for that. And leaders should welcome that. And say, hey, I, I admit, I need to hear that. Hey, that's a good point. We should pay attention to that. Hey, I hadn't noticed that before. Thank you for sharing it. Again, a lot of this is preaching to myself. Right? As pastors, as leaders, we want to be those who receive feedback well. Right? Widows being overlooked... That's a serious and legitimate concern, right? God has made clear in his word that we are to care for widows. 
God has made his heart clear in Scripture about how he wants to protect and defend the vulnerable and how his people should seek to do that as well. God is near to those who are in need. And there's three people groups in the Old Testament that often get highlighted and given special attention. And they're orphans, widows, and immigrants. Just one example of God's heart. We could quote many of these verses, but Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18 says of God, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. So we see the heart of God on display over and over again in the scriptures. He cares for the vulnerable. He cares for the orphan and the fatherless. He cares for widows who often would have little social resources or ability to care for themselves, and he loves the foreigner residing among you. God's people then are to share God's heart and care for vulnerable, vulnerable people as well. This is not a political stance. It's a kingdom stance, a heart posture for the people of God. And so the apostles realized right away, absolutely, widows need to be cared for in the church. And they're not being cared for, so we're going to make a plan to address it. But I want you also to notice in the text, it's quite clear in their response that there's some uh, discernment and wisdom that they use in how they're responding to this conflict. And so we need to respond to growth and conflict or navigate growth and conflict with great love, but also with wisdom. And here's what I mean by that. First, notice in verse 2 their response. It says, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Now, that response might seem a little callous to some of us at first. But I think it's actually showing great wisdom and discernment. They say there's a problem to be addressed. But it would not be right for us personally to be the ones to fix it. In other words, the widows need to be cared for by this community. Absolutely. But there are others in this community who need to be raised up and appointed to carry out that work. It would not be right for us, the apostles, to be the ones to do this. Why? Well, they say we cannot neglect the ministry of the word. Right? Verse 4 tells us we will turn this responsibility over to them, these appointed men. And verse 4 then, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So realize the apostles knew their calling. They knew what they had been uniquely gifted and called to do by God. They have a laser focus. We have been uniquely commissioned for the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word. We are to teach the scriptures, proclaim the gospel, lead the church in this necessary work. So this is not a calloused response, but a right and wise response. Because if the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word is neglected then the church ceases to be the church. See, at the heart of the church is the gospel. 
and the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. The ministry of the word is about teaching the scriptures and showing how all of the scriptures point to Jesus and who he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the king, the wonderful savior that we sang about just a few minutes ago, proclaiming his life, death, and resurrection. The heartbeat of the church is this message for what I received, 1 Corinthians 15 says, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. As a church, we have to continue to preach the gospel. And there are some uniquely gifted and called to the ministry of the word. Many look to this passage as the first instance of deacons in the church. Even though that title isn't officially used here to label them, but in the church we'll see this distinction between elders and deacons. And elders are those who are responsible for this prayer and ministry of the word, teaching and protecting and guarding right doctrine. And then we see from this text and others that there are others, often titled deacons, appointed to handle countless and various other tasks within the church. Necessary tasks, and yet distinct from the ministry of the word. So it would not be right for us, they say, to divert our attention from this ministry to then sort out the logistics of food distribution to the widows. Not because it isn't important. It is important, and we're going to address it. But there are others who can fulfill that ministry. And so a simple principle to take away from this, I think it's clear from the text, is that, friends, we need to realize that not every job has our name on it. <laughs> it's true. Not every job has your name on it. You have been gifted and called for a purpose in the body of Christ, you are called to play a specific role and function and serve in a specific way. Some things have your name on it. Some things don't. It's okay to say no to certain opportunities. And this isn't great timing, to be honest, with ramping up fall ministries and recruiting volunteers <laughs> and needing help in a number of areas in the church. But it's true, it's okay to say no. And I don't think it's best for you or for the kingdom for you to say yes to things that aren't uh, in your wheelhouse. So we need to be careful with this because sometimes we can misunderstand and go to extremes here. Uh, th there are times where it's necessary, hear me, where we all pitch in to help out and we all end up doing certain tasks that maybe aren't our favorite, but they need to be done. There's a place for that. But I think as much as possible, and especially when we're talking about bigger commitments, bigger projects, serving in bigger ways that are going to take up big chunks of time for us or others, we want to be as wise as possible to make sure that God is calling us to it. And really make sure that your name is on it. And saying no to things is not necessarily a sign of spiritual immaturity, but could be a sign of great spiritual maturity. Saying, hey, I know what this ministry requires. I know who I am and how I'm wired. And I know this is not going to be a fit. 
Now, you've heard the phrase perhaps, every yes is a thousand no's. And I think we need to keep that in mind, that when we say yes to something, a commitment, an event, a recurring time slot in our week, we're saying no to a thousand other things. We're saying, hey, for that time, that commitment, I'm saying no to possibly my family. I'm saying no to maybe my spouse or my kids or this other thing that God's given me to do. Every yes is a thousand no's. And so we have to be really careful that we don't too easily say yes to anything that comes our way. Again, we have to practice discernment. We have to listen to the Holy Spirit. But I think one of the problems in the church, at least uh, one of the problems I encounter often, is I say yes too often because I'm uncomfortable saying no. Because if I say no, well, that person might not like me as much. Or that but might be an uncomfortable conversation. Or I might be uh, disappointing someone. And so I say yes, not out of a genuine desire to help and serve, but out of a selfish posture of self-preservation. Or sometimes we say yes out of a misguided desire to be the hero of the story. And we forget that there is one Savior, and his name is Jesus. And that's not us. And so maybe the Lord in his wisdom and providence would be raising up others for this very task and cause. And so I might feel good to fill this need and say yes to this and be the answer that people are looking for. But it's not good for my own heart or for the kingdom or for others having opportunities to use their gifts. So we can't say yes to everything. This is part of acknowledging our own humanity, right? God is God. God is infinite, infinite in strength and wisdom in power. He is the one who never grows weak or weary or stumbles, but we do. We have limits, and one of the most God-honoring things we can do is acknowledge our limits, that we are created beings, we are not God, and we should not try to be. We should be exactly human-sized, as one author put it. Again, some of this means we need rest, we need Sabbath, we need sleep. We can only do so much. I read yesterday in a book about the need for sleep that we all have. Isn't it interesting they, they pointed out how we all feel like maybe one day when we've had a good night's sleep and we're you know, well-fed or we're healthy that we can conquer the world. And there's nothing that we can't do and we, we get boosted up in our own pride. And then after one night, just one night of bad sleep, we are reduced to an incoherent and incompetent mess. <laughs> That's all it takes to throw us off our game. One night of no sleep or bad sleep. And boom, we're in just a puddle on the floor. And so we have to realize our limits. Now again, this takes great discernment, great sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying don't volunteer for ministries in the church. <laughs> I'm just saying it's okay to say no and be sensitive to how God is leading you. So the apostles here know this. They show great wisdom. Hey, our calling, prayer and ministry of the word. We can't neglect that. But hey, this is still an issue. We're going to find others who can solve it. 
And we see wisdom in how they're going to solve the problem. Verse 3, you notice that they are to select those who will be full of the Spirit and wisdom. So they're not just saying flippantly, hey, grab anybody. You know, anybody could do this. Have them figure it out. We don't care. Just throw some names together. No, they say, we want you to find those who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. Godly men who can address this situation. And so we see, hey, if we're doing a parallel here between elders and deacons, then we say even for deacons, those who serve the church and lead the church in these practical uh, affairs are to be people full of the Spirit and great wisdom. Not just anybody can be thrust into a leadership role. There's qualifications for leaders. And we also see wisdom in uh, they allow the people to select their own leaders. The people of the church, not just the apostles, say, hey, here's our guys, they're going to handle it. They say, okay, how about you people of the church, especially those of the offended party, are allowed to choose these seven. And if you look at the names in verses 5 and 6, I won't uh, read through the list again. Uh, but if you look at them, you'll notice they're all uh, Greek names. They're not all, uh, none of them are, are Hebrew names. And so the Hebraic Jews didn't appoint other Hebraic Jews to serve the Greek-speaking Jews. They said, hey, Greek-speaking Jews, they were able to appoint other Greek-speaking Jews. People from the offended party were given leadership and responsibility to address the need. And so we see great love shown by the apostles in navigating this conflict, hearing the need, and we see great wisdom in coming up with a plan to address it. And so with us today, friends, as with a marriage, there will be conflict in the church. If you become a member of the church, uh, there will be conflict in your future. And there's an invitation then in Scripture to not be surprised or disillusioned when this arrives, but instead learn how to navigate it with love and wisdom and forbearance and patience and godliness and focus on others. You say, well, that sounds like a high calling. That sounds like a difficult task. And it often is. Right? Life in the church can be messy and painful. Not always easy breezy and so necessary to this approach and posture is that we would look to Jesus. That we would consider him the one who so loved us. That we, as Philippians 2 says, would have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to cling to. He didn't hold on to his privilege and position, staying safe in heaven, but no, he, he, what? he emptied himself. And in humility, he came to us, and he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. And so if we are hurt or discouraged or beaten up by conflict in the church, our invitation is to look to Jesus, the one who suffered for us, the one who loves us, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, the good shepherd who feeds his sheep, who protects his sheep, the God of all comfort, 
who even in the valley of the shadow of death allows us to walk without fear because what he is with us. So may we ever and always look to Jesus, our Savior. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we worship you together this morning, and we thank you for Acts chapter 6, where we see, we see conflict in the church, we see love, we see wisdom in addressing these things. Would you help us be a church that likewise displays great love for one another, a willingness first to listen to our brothers and sisters who are hurting, rather than defending or explaining away or downplaying. Lord, help us listen well. Help us seek to understand before we seek to be understood. And Lord, give us great wisdom as we look at the fall and all the classes and uh, ministry needs with youth and kids and whatever else, Lord. Pray you give uh, our church great wisdom and our, our church the wisdom to know what to say yes to. What is it that you're calling us to? How can we best serve you and your church this fall? Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen. <clears throat> Matt, there's conflict in marriage? <laughs> Whether it's marriage, relationships, church, or our invitation is to look to Jesus. We're going to do that together as we close. Feel free to sit or stand.